1: Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to Icy In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And just to get started, you know, the title of the show is "We're Sorry," and I think it's time for me to give my apology for what has happened. Psych! I haven't done shit because I'm perfect. Not actually, but this is a historic day. This is the beginning of a historic time in that this is my final week as solo host of In Case You Missed It. I know none of you elected me, but thank you for sticking around for this dictatorship. You had no choice. And this is beginning to sound a lot like a goodbye speech, which it very much is not. Sorry to all my haters, I'm still here. Speaking of sorry's, you see what I did there? Do you ever feel like we're drowning in them? It seems like once a day at this point, some celebrity, or an influencer, or a politician, or honestly just a random person who happened to be in the background of a viral video is offering up an apology. This isn't a new or unique observation, to be clear. Saris are so abundant that we now have genres of them, including the infamous notes app apology, which is so popular as to be passé. According to Paper Magazine, They declared in 2021 that the Notes app apology was canceled. The Notes app did not offer an apology at the time. I'm just going to read a bit from the article so y'all can get a sense of scale. This was two years ago, so if you've forgotten what any of these apologies are for, same. Other celebrities who have favored the Notes app apology include, but are not limited to, Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber, Chance the Rapper, Ariana Grande, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Fifth Harmony, Drake, Migos, Amy Schumer, Pete Davidson, Lena Dunham, Azealia Banks, Army Hammer, James Charles, Kendall Jenner, and even Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. Most recently, celebrity SoulCycle instructor Stacy Griffith posted a Notes app apology for receiving the COVID nineteen vaccine that last sentence was deeply 2021. But the problem didn't stop there. People keep apologizing over, and over, and over, and over, and over again, so much so that any apology given in public is immediately treated with cynicism. But how did we get here? And, perhaps more importantly, where do we go from here? The act of apologizing is one that is deeply necessary for a functional society, but at this point, apologizing is so commodified as to be useless. To help me understand the history of the public apology, from the Salem Witch Trials to the NoTap apology, I called up Rom Team Ara Bluey, the co-host and co-producer of NPR's Throughline podcast, which recently did an episode on this exact topic. I know I say this all the time, and the things I mean it every time I do, but this conversation was so much fun. We talked about everything from the Encyclopedia Britannica to Macklemore to the 2020 George Floyd uprisings. All of that after a short break. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7, U.S.-based, live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER
0: to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well...
1: and i'm back with rom team arblue the co-host and producer of npr's throughline podcast which explores the historical context of what we're seeing today recent episode topics include the history of the credit score the beckdale test high fructose corn syrup and also public apologies we're here to talk about that last episode which should come as no surprise because as i said before the break one of the more frequent topics of discussion here is the dreaded notes app apology but before we dive into that hello and thank you for joining me how are you doing
2: i'm doing well thank you thank you for having me it's it's gonna be fun i'm really looking forward to it
1: i am too i ask all my guests the same question first which is what is your first internet memory
2: so i'm maybe older than a lot of people listening to the show my first one is getting the internet for the first time Mm. with our first computer aol was the software That was on your computer. So for me, the first time is like actually turning it on. And it was in our kitchen. So in our apartment, in our kitchen, because my parents, they even understood then you can only use this like out here in the open. Me and my brother shared a room. It wasn't going to be in our room. It was going to be out here. My brother's seven years older. He wasn't as interested, but I was at the right age. I think I was like 11 or 12 or something like that. But I was really into it. So my first memory is opening it up. And the first thing I got really obsessed with was the encyclopedia. They had that like Britannica online encyclopedia because before then, you had to have money to buy encyclopedia. Yeah. Like, I don't remember. You know, they would sell them door to door mm-hmm. and there were like volumes of books. So they only had them at school. So I didn't have access to them all the time. And so for the first time, I could just go and just look up whatever I wanted. That was like one of the things I like to do by myself is just look up a random thing and go. It's like, I guess, early version of an internet wormhole. But- that's my earliest memories. Like the first two or three days, I was up late, like so late. My parents were yelling at me, just looking up random things, like like who was Genghis Khan, like I was looking up all that history or like random other things. So that's my earliest internet memories. Be getting addicted to the Britannica online encyclopedia that came with the yeah. computer that was connected to the internet.
1: I gotta say, you saying that it does make a lot of sense that you work for NPR now.
2: I was, oh, I've always been nerdy, always <laughs> since I was a kid. So I think, yeah, I think I was destined for this job, but. But I've always been kind of like going into wormholes and losing myself in them. I think it was just a way to pass time and not get bored. So the internet changed the game for me very young.
1: I mean, speaking of wormholes, you recently went into one on public apologies. One of the questions I wanted to ask is, do you remember the first celebrity Public apology, like what's the first one that you remember, kind of like hitting you?
2: I think it was one of the ones we profiled in the episode, which was Bill Clinton's apology. Yeah, I think it was like an early, like an early teenager, and I remember my mom had gotten into this car accident, and so she was in a hospital for like a week or two, and mm-hmm. I was there, and it was playing on the TV his apology, his first one, the one he did to like the national audience. Yeah. And I just remember being like, yo, this is weird because you always think of the president as this like untouchable, powerful Mm -hmm. figure. And he just looked kind of pitiful and defensive in his apology. And I remember even then as a kid noticing it that I think it was probably a bad example of what an apology is, but it was one of the first that I remember seeing so, you know, publicly and being really moved by.
1: I mean, a bad example of what an apology is, but a good example of what public apologies would kind of come to be. The two-step public apology of the first one that gets, quite frankly, shat on, and then the second one that's like, okay, I've I've reconvened you with a PR team, and now I'm actually going to do this for real. And you go through that cycle in your episode, and I'm really curious as to how this episode like, kind of came to be.
2: You hit the nail on the head. I think the tension in there's two kind of levels of tension in the episode. One is the tension between like apology and action. How much an apology means if there's not an action and understanding behind it. And then the other point of tension is what has happened to apology? Has it been emptied of its meaning over time? And those are the two things we're grappling with in the episode. The way the episode came about was Devin Katayama, one of the producers on our show, who's also a reporter, who some people, especially from the Bay may know, he used to be the host of a show called The Bay that's on KQED. And uh, he joined our team last year. He's a really great guy, an amazing producer. He came with this pitch around public apologies. It's kind of like, we should look into the history of how the public apology has evolved. And so the idea was to take on these bigger questions about what they are, how they function, how they've come to be seen so cynically by most of the public. I think most of us, See these like corporate apologies, either by people or by companies, and kind of roll our eyes. We're making an argument in the episode, which is that apology and atonement and redemption are important functions that our society needs in order to function in a healthy way. Because people are going to make mistakes, they're going to do really bad things, they're going to harm people, they're going to things. These things are just part of human nature. And there has to be some process by which we heal or move on from those things. But as a society, how do we move on from injury is the question. And we wanted to look into the history of this in order to try to understand if there's a way forward out of what feels like kind of a mess now with how apology functions.
1: Yeah. And I really love the structure that y'all chose to tell the story in, which is connecting these kind of three historical public apologies. I mean, we're talking about being history nerds, but starting with the Salem witch trials was not where I expect this episode to start with. And I love that That's what y'all chose. But then going into World War II and then, of course, the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky affair. How did you choose those three historical moments as the ones to focus on in the episode?
2: What we try to do is make an argument about a particular thing happening in the world. And when we can solidify what that argument is, as I laid out, then we kind of go about choosing the stories to kind of interrogate that discussion or that argument. The Salem witch trials are something that a lot of people or we're taught about, many of us taught about from a young age, but we're given kind of a cursory story, which is, you know, people kind of went crazy in these years in kind of early colonial America And they started accusing people of being witches and they did all these terrible things. The famous Mm -hmm. story is kind of one of the tests to see if you were a witch or not was they would put you in a body of water. And if you drowned, you weren't a witch. But if you (laughs) survived, you were a witch. I mean, these horrible things. And so what we wanted to look, ask the question is, did people realize what they did was wrong Did anyone apologize for it? And that's the part of the story that I had never heard. Devin basically reported out and looked into and found out, yeah, actually there were several people who were on the court that convicted a lot of the people who were accused of being witches. So there was this court of... the. Called the court of oyer and terminus which was the official court that convicted people and then sentenced them to death or any of these horrific ends that people met and it started out in 1697 with one guy named samuel sewell who basically felt really bad for what he had yeah. done um he had had a loss in his family in the years after the conviction so he felt like he was cursed by what he did he publicly apologized in 1697 and from there every member of that court apologized. Yeah. And that was a part of the story I didn't know, that people understood then what they had done wrong, but it took centuries mm-hmm. for people to be exonerated. All the judges came out and said, we shouldn't have done it. We should not have convicted these people. We had were basically temporarily kind of insane in that moment. Yeah. And it took all the way, basically to the 20th century, for the final person, Ann Pudiator, to have her name exonerated. And what that told us is that Even when people apologize, even when people realize what they've done wrong and make a public apology, there's this next step that doesn't always come. An important next step, which is action, which has to be followed up by some kind of resolution, some kind of reparation of the damage that had been done. And so it brought up a really important question of like, okay, we can publicly apologize. We can take responsibility. But what does that really mean? The Bill Clinton one, which we just talked about, is an example of what happens when a public apology is made and then the audience Gives feedback, which is essentially <laughs> what happened because Bill Clinton made the yeah. first apology. His polling numbers went down. And so like, yo, we have to change course. And he took kind of a religious approach to the second apology. And that's very interesting because as a fairly religious country, the I think many Christians in America understand the concept of atonement. And so when he delivered it through that mechanism, more people started to like buy it. That gives us an entryway into kind of the beginnings of the cynicism around apology. Because what you see is, is this mechanism where people are adjusting it. And it's not really clear... If they mean it or if they're just trying to tell you what you want to hear.
1: Yeah, that kind of perfectly segues to my next question, which is that there's this question that kind of underlies your entire episode, which is how did apologies go from a process into a product, which is fully what it is now? Do you feel like you kind of came to understand that process more? And like, where would you say, I guess, in the timeline that process went fully from into the product area.
2: We you know we leave it open for the audience to reach their own conclusions on this based on their kind of storytelling we do. But personally, it seems that after World War II with Willy Brandt's knee fall and the beginnings of countries saying sorry for something they've done in the past, particularly, and that's because, I mean, particularly European countries because mm. we were coming off European imperialism, the transatlantic yeah. slave trade, right? It was just during that period. I think the coupling of those kinds of like um, politically motivated apologies, in some cases, which were sincere. I don't want to say that it, like Willie Brandt's apology was definitely sincere, but when you have it kind of in the political realm, on top of the fact that there was political polling beginning to happen, the media, like kind of worldwide media was becoming a thing. The growth of these two kind of areas along with the need to kind of deal with political issues through apology, began this process, in my view. So in the 60s and 70s is the beginning of it. And then it goes into hyperdrive in the 90s. Our argument is post-Clinton's apology. So Clinton makes this apology, and it begins this process where other companies, and I don't think they were all necessarily looking at Clinton's apology. It was just the kind of moment where PR firms were designing apologies, where apology became a part of a PR campaign in many cases to save brands, to save um, reputations and careers. It became an almost transactional apology economy that was birthed. And I think we're living in maybe the kind of zenith of it, but it is has gotten to the point now where it's very difficult to take any apology seriously because you can kind of see through the PR language. A lot of the apologies are delivered the same way. Um, they are in response to things that often are not that serious, Yeah. Sometimes things that don't need to be apologized for are being apologized for. And then things that should be apologized for aren't being apologized (laughs) for. So it's become, like you said, a, a product and an economy has risen around it.
1: One of your guests said the Bill Clinton apology proved that the public had a role to play in defining these scripts. And I'm curious as to what you think that role is and how much you think the Internet has changed that role.
2: The more interaction... There is between the apologizer and the people accepting the apology, the faster that interaction happens, the more of these kinds of apologies we see. And that's Mm -hmm. all been facilitated by television and then the internet. So to me, it's pretty clear why it's been the last 20 years is that everyone has a smartphone now. Everyone has access to the internet. Tons of people are on Twitter or other social media, right? Instagram, um, TikTok. And so the interaction between public facing people and the people they're apologizing to has just the gap between them has narrowed to the point that it can have this immediate feedback, have this kind of back and forth. And what Clinton proved was that if you listen to the public and kind of deliver the appropriate kind of apology, you can dodge any bullet. You can dodge any kind of. And so I do think it's a function of the way media exists and how fast information is shared and that narrowing of a gap between celebrities and people viewing them on the other side of the screen.
1: It suffice to say we're firmly in the product era of apologies like every single celebrity that you could possibly think of release an apology at some point i'm not going to list all of them but i'm going to list a few just to kind of give a hint of what we're talking about but we've got lady gaga ariana grande army hammer azealia banks drake amy schumer miley cyrus lena dunham multiple times taylor swift james charles also multiple times jerule the dalai lama recently exxon mobil I could go on. And what's funny is I've fully forgotten what most of these people are apologizing for or
2: apologize Mm -hmm. for. It's cheapened it, rendered it ineffective, dysfunctional. The deeper problem there is not just how absurd and laughable many of these apologies are. is that the real threat is without the functionality of an apology, there's no space for atonement. There's no space to forgive. And that is equally dangerous because the other side of the cynicism is that we leave very little space in our minds and our hearts and our culture for forgiving people, for allowing people back into society who've made mistakes. And as long as we have a negative or cynical attitude or, like I said, if it's the, the functionality of an apology is not working, then we don't get that other side. And both of those things are important. So what we identified as the real danger of the apology as a process being in the state it's in right now. Underneath all that, our society is kind of like, I don't know how to say this, but there's a kind of cruelty and a narcissistic emptiness. To the idea that you can't come back from a mistake.
1: Exactly. And speaking of narcissistic emptiness, I have a little anecdote from one James Charles that I think really sums up what you're describing, Rom Team. But first, we need to take a short break.
0: Kid Nation, a six part podcast from CBC. Available now.
1: Hi, y'all. If you love our podcast, then please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. When you subscribe to Slate Plus, you get no ads on any Slate podcast. You will also be supporting the show. ICYMI would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus subscribers. And you get bonus segments or episodes on shows like Slow Burn, Big Mood, Little Mood, The Culture Gap Fest, Mom and Dad are Fighting. Maybe in the future, some bonus segments from in case you missed it. Who could say? Sign up for Slate Plus. You'll be the first to know. You'll also get unlimited reading on the Slate website, which means you get access to every single article and advice column on Slate without ever hitting the paywall. To sign up, just visit slate.com slash That is slate.com slash I'm
2: at a place in my life where I feel like I have a target on my back. And because of that, I should make smart decisions. And recently, I didn't. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to sit up here and say that I am or or claim to be in any way, shape, or form. And I made a bad error in judgment and put myself in an environment where only bad things can happen, and they did. Hey, what's up, everybody?
0: I just wanted to reach out and apologize. I am sorry. I am sorry if I offended anyone by singing along to the Fugees, to a song I love that I grew up on. I love Lauryn Hill. I really am sorry if I offended you. Why didn't you apologize to Chris in your acceptance speech? Um, I was fogged out by that point. It's, it's, it's all fuzzy. I've reached out to Chris, um, and the, mes- the message that came back is that uh, he's not ready to talk, and when he is, he will reach out. So I will, I will say to you, Chris, I apologize to you. Uh, my behavior was unacceptable and I'm here whenever you're ready to talk. First and foremost, I need to say sorry. Um, I owe a massive apology to anybody that I've hurt or anybody that I've made uncomfortable with my actions. And I also wanna say I'm sorry to my friends, family and fans that have to watch another one of these videos because you shouldn't have to and this is really, really embarrassing.
1: We're drowning in apologies, but there's a whole lack of action. So many people seem to think that the apology is the end of the entire thing rather than the beginning of a process. It's kind of become an art form. I don't know if you know the influencer James Charles, but he hosted a YouTube show called Instant Influencer where he would turn people into influencers. And one of the challenges was that these new influencers had to make a believable apology video. In the episode, James said, take this from me because I've had to deal with this. As an influencer, when you grow a following, you might either say or do something that people might not like or agree with, and eventually you might have to apologize. James does know this. He's had to make multiple apology videos, but it really kind of hammered home to me how much apologizing right now is about the performance it's like in the youtube era it's the low light it's no makeup it's graceful tears it's the notes app and it just makes me wonder who is this for and so i kind of want to turn that question back to you and ask you who do you think celebrity apologies are for
2: the consumer of their product and i think the goal is to not rid themselves of guilt the person who's done it is to rid the consumer of just enough guilt that they'll continue to consume their product. So if you're an actor, you want to free your fan of any kind of guilt or shame about continuing to support you just enough that they'll continue to come watch your movies or, you know, buy products that you're promoting, et cetera. There's this guy named Liver King.
1: Oh my God, I know Liver
2: King. So you know about his apology. And that was Mm -hmm. one of the strangest apologies.
0: Primals, I'm making this video to apologize. Because I fucked up. Because I'm embarrassed and ashamed. Because I lied. And I misled a lot of people. I've stated that this is a complicated as fuck topic, at least to me it is, because before social media, I was rich and anonymous, and after social media, I'm still rich, but no longer anonymous, and I never expected this kind of exposure in the public eye. It's been tricky as fuck to navigate. Well, clearly I did it wrong, and I'm here now to set the record straight. Yes, I've done steroids, and yes, I'm on steroids, monitored and managed by a trained hormone clinician.
2: For, you know, months, people were pointing out this guy is not natural. like he has every yeah. kind of characteristic of someone who uses performance-enhancing drugs or steroids or whatever. He admits it, but the admission was this bizarre, like performance that doesn't really accept guilt because he was walking a kind of legal, fine line, because I think he understood that he could be sued, and, you know, people would want their money back who bought his products. That's a quintessential example, in my view, of that that wasn't for him. That wasn't for atonement. What it was for was to continue his business. And I think a lot of apologies attached to businesses end up like this. It's really hard to take an apology seriously and create this sense of atonement and kind of soulful reparation or retribution or whatever it is when it's ultimately about someone's acting career or a product they're selling you, you know? And as long as that's the main format in which we're kind of exercising the process of apology, there will be a lot of cynicism. And what's tragic about that is there's a lot of things for us to deal with in our history that we should be trying to figure out how to correct. And so my fear is as long as it's not clear who it's for or what it's supposed to be about, the cynicism will not go away.
1: That makes me wonder, do you feel like businesses can apologize? As an internet culture reporter, I'm often talking about influencers, which are basically businesses. They're all small businesses in and of themselves.
2: A business can apologize. It's very difficult to tell the difference when it's like a company or a corporation between them just trying to get you to continue to buy their product and genuine remorse and trying to fix the problem. Exxon, for example, they have apologized for poisoning water and then as a result, people, those apologies have ramifications. They have reparation needing to be attached to them because there's legal dimensions to it. It's never clear whether the CEO of that company actually feels bad. And in some ways, does it matter or not? I don't know. There needs to be action that backs it up. So that's a little different. And that tension is just going to be there with all apologies. But it's just gotten worse when the distance between the person apologizing, us, and the product is so narrow. It's like all mixed up. That's the danger of like the influencer apology. I would say the politician apology is a predecessor to the Mm -hmm. influencer apology because influencer apologies sound a lot like political apologies. They all sound the same.
1: What you're describing is this kind of context collapse that happens on the internet so much because the form of what we're receiving all looks the same. The tweet from Barack Obama looks the same as the tweet from my best friend. And so (laughs) there's this way in which apologies all seem the same. And then you add in the extra layer of the notes app apology, which has become a meme of its own. So much so that when someone like Don Lemon puts out a statement in a completely different app. It's a part of the discourse that is not the notes app. I have a theory as to why the notes app has become the preferred medium through which to apologize, but why do you think so many people choose the notes app and what do you think it does?
2: I think the function of a apology today as it works in the press is to convey sincerity and genuineness. It's part of the performance. It makes you believe that I really am thinking about this and grappling with it. And the really messed up part is that they might be they might actually the person might actually be grappling with this and deeply sincere but when the performance is repeated when the performance is commodified and made uniform then it's really hard to believe if three people come up to you and apologize to you for something they did in the exact same way or if you repeat an apology exact same way as someone else did obviously people are going to kind of be like that's weird That's oddly robotic and strange. And I think what happens is the effort, the performance to convey sincerity and a kind of folksy sincerity. You know what I mean? That's what Mm -hmm. weirdly it's like the notes app is like a quill and pen on like paper. It's weird. It's like, oh, I'm this isn't coming out through some like official press release.
1: Yes. It's like I use the notes app just like you when you're trying to write down your dreams at 2 (laughs) (laughs) a.m.
2: I'm just like you, says Don Lemon. It's weird as shit, but it's also like part of that act, part of it as a performance in an act. Where it gets complicated is that it is a performance to some extent. It's just like how much are we going to believe that our performance or not is based on these very small kind of contours or dimensions of it that all matter. But again, we can feel it when it's bullshit. We can feel it when it's fake. And yeah. I think in this instance, that repeated use of the Notes app is just an example of that.
1: Yeah. For some reason, this is making me think of, um, do you remember when Macklemore um, published his text to Kendrick yes. Lamar? yeah.
2: Oh man, that was cringe. That was so
1: it. was it, it was, but... Can you describe to me why you think it's cringe? Because like, I feel like we're kind of dancing around like that is the perfect kind of performative apology where it, it, it doesn't do anything for anyone.
2: Okay, so in that case, what I found so horrible about it is we don't need to know everything that's happening in your life. This is one of the problems with social media now in general, right? It makes us all think we have an audience. And Macklemore is a celebrity. He has an audience, but that's an intimate thing to apologize to somebody else because you think that they should have won the award over you. Kendrick Lamar didn't publish that. Macklemore did. It would be one thing if Kendrick Lamar put it out and said, I asked... Macklemore, if I could send this, I just want y'all to know like, this is a good dude. He sent me this thing. It's still weird and kind of cringy of Kendrick Lamar to do that, but a little bit more acceptable. There's something so weird about putting out some deeply personal thing out of like a guilt. Nobody was asking for that. No one wanted Macklemore to apologize for that. That was some weird preemptive, like insecure thing that he did that I think what makes it so cringy is it's born out of insecurity. And I think we can all feel when something's really intimate and it's being put out into the public like that. There's something like I didn't need to see that.
1: This is a hot take that I just came up with. So someone's probably going to be like, that's weird. But it feels almost like the Bill Clinton moment for me in terms of internet apologies. Like the Macklemore apology to Kendrick Lamar has a lot of resonance for what apologies look like right now, which is that it's rarely ever for the person who's harmed. It's for everyone else who's watching and for the person to feel good about themselves.
2: Exactly. I felt like this in the 2020 kind of George Floyd summer. There was one video, you probably remember, where all those kind of white celebrities were like, it's my fault. I take responsibility.
0: I take responsibility.
2: I take responsibility. I take responsibility for every unchecked moment. For
0: every time it was easier to ignore than to call it out for what it was.
2: Every not so funny joke. Every unfair stereotype.
0: Every blatant injustice, no matter how big or small.
2: Every time I remained silent.
0: Every time I explained away police brutality or turned a blind eye. I take responsibility. Black people are being slaughtered in the streets killed in their own homes. These are our brothers and sisters, our friends, our family. We are done watching them die. We are no longer bystanders. We will not be idle.
1: Enough is enough.
2: That wasn't for Black folks in America. No. The narcissism of that, I think, is also what's cringy We have, I think human beings, and this is just my belief, and anyone who listens to Throughline will know, this is just the kind of thread of the show, that we have a kind of innate faith that human beings are much more communal and much less self-centered in our nature than social, like the modern world makes us out to be. It's that the internet and the way everything is designed makes us act and appear more narcissistic. But one of the reasons we're like also depressed, at least in the West, and in, in the more like kind of, you know, industrialized countries or wealthier countries is that we are really, we're living in a narcissistic kind of world where everything's self-centered and that makes us sad and depressed. But that in our nature, deep down inside, we are, we want to help people. We want to be in other people's lives. We want to be out and about and connected with community. And there's something deeply opposite of that. With what both Macklemore did and those celebrities in in that strange video, in that George Floyd summer. They made it about them when it was supposed to be a communal moment. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and it's extremely transactive in that it's asking for the benefits of an apology, which is absolution. But without actually giving anything up, a real apology doesn't ask for the person who is harmed to do anything, really. Yes, It it doesn't require them to say, I forgive you. It doesn't require forgiveness. Justice and forgiveness are two separate things. And so I think that's what one of the things in your episode that really kind of struck me was that restorative justice can happen without the victim or the person who's harmed having to take it upon themselves to be the bigger person.
2: That's right. Tommy Shakur Ross is a great case of that because it's not clear to him if, you know, the letters he wrote to the families of the the victims of his actions ever read them it's not a neat tidy story right this mm-hmm. is messy and complex and that's what I left thinking of it too after working on this episode but what I also left the episode believing is that like it's worth fighting for not giving up on the process of an apology or f- restoring justice or restoring kind of um, balance to society through this process is worth fighting for I think about very small communities. I mean, if you just like rewind 20,000 years ago, most of our ancestors were living in really small communities, but they weren't, they weren't angels, right? They, there was, there was things, bad things that happened then too. There was all the tensions that we have today. They weren't that much different from us in a lot of ways. And I think they had more of a practical, pragmatic need for trying to solve tensions or, figure out how to move on from a really horrendous thing. And so the the apology, the process of atonement was most likely born out of that necessity. And they needed it. They needed it to survive, to literally make it to the next season, to make it to the next year. And we need to fight for it in that way. We need to find a way to bring apologies back, to take them out of their current state of being commodified and cheapened. Otherwise, we won't survive. I really do believe it's that important.
1: If you were to instruct someone on how to give a public apology, what would you tell them to do?
2: As not being an expert on this at all, from having worked on this episode, the first question I think people should ask is, should I apologize? Does this require a public apology? Because that's the first thing. Sometimes it doesn't. If you've hurt someone personally, apologize to them. Fix it with them. But if you're going to give a public apology, first, ask if you should do it. Second, do it in the least narcissistic way possible. (sighs) Do it in the most humble way possible and make sure it's followed up with action and make sure you're not asking for anything in return. So if you really are sorry for doing something terrible and you're giving a public apology, give it in such a way to be like, I'm sorry I did this. I don't need anything. I'm stepping away. I'm not even going to continue. So I would actually say, if you've done something horrible enough, stop your career for a while. Like actually show that you're trying to do something about it or deal with it or that you've changed or that you're going to try to change because otherwise the transactional nature of it, people will see right through it. So those are the two things I'd say. Make sure you need to give it at all or that it's a good idea. And number two, actually put your career on pause or if you're a company actually do something with your money to fix the problem that you created. So if you're going to poison a river, clean it up, like help the people that you've poisoned in the neighboring communities actually be ready to lose something in the process, be ready to atone in a real way. And I think that's what's key is that there has to be some action to follow it up. I think over time, Germany has taken more and more actions to try to actually show they're sorry for what happened in the Holocaust. It's not going to ever be able to be reversed, but they acknowledge that this is a responsibility of the country, that the nation of Germany um, under the rule of the Nazis did this and that there has to be some process to try to make it right. So action seems to be the last part of that that is absolutely required if you're doing a public apology of any kind.
1: That was Rom Team Ira Bluey, the co-host and co-producer of NPR's Throughline, which y'all should definitely be listening to. And that is the show. I will be back in your feed on Saturday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode. For those of y'all who love Nadira Gough, I might be able to drop a teaser that she may or may not be on Saturday's episode, so definitely don't miss that. Please leave a rating and review on an Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is the place if we were to ever to give a real apology, that's probably where it would be. And you can also always drop us a note at icymayaflake.com. ICYMIA is produced by Sarah Spagley-Ricks and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. See you online or on the notes app.